Welcome to Dementia Dialogue and the fifth episode in our series, System Journey, where we are discussing people's experience with healthcare in the context of dementia. Today we are talking with a family physician, Ajantha Jayabarathan, who practices in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Ajantha is also affiliated with the Department of Family Medicine at Dalhousie University and has been in practice for 30 years. And thank you very much for uh, joining us today in this uh, conversation. So my name is Ajantha Jayabarathan. Um, my name is rather long and difficult to remember, so most people call me Dr. AJ. And as of uh, 2022, I will have practiced family medicine for 30 years, hard to believe. I was born and raised in India. My family immigrated to King Carden, uh, in on the shores of Lake Huron in Ontario. And I did my two years of undergrad and four years of medicine at Western Ontario. And then I came out to Nova Scotia to do two years of family medicine. I fell in love with the people and the place and I stayed. I'm married with two children. And I've uh, worked, I initially work in the uh, Dalhousie Department of Family Medicine. And by 2005, I wanted to practice in community. And so I moved into the community. I've uh, been located in four different uh, sites. All of it has been within urban Halifax. I have a collaborative uh, family practice. In fact, the choice of the name of my current uh, clinic and business is uh, Coral Shared Care Health Center. And it was done very consciously, and it was done because of the impact that the shared mental health care movement has had on me as I was developing as a practitioner. I have a collaborative uh, family practice. In fact, the choice of the name of my current clinic and business is uh, Coral Shared Care Health Center. And it was done very consciously, and it was done because of the impact that the shared mental health care movement has had on me as I was developing as a practitioner. The tenets of collaborative care to me are now germane to my practice of family medicine. My primary collaborative partner is my medical office administrator. Most people, when I ask medical students that this, they'll often say, you know, a, a nurse or somebody else, but no, it is the woman who sits and answers all the phones and greets every patient who comes into my office. You know, uh, First Link was really, for me, it was like a lifesaver, something that was thrown into this sea where we're in primary care drowning because of the increase in demand and lack of resources. But what was remarkable about First Link was how practical and on the ground and easy to access it was. So then coming to dementia, I'm wondering whether you might position yourself as in your family practice and one of your patients who you may have had for a period of time either uh, you know begins to display some of the symptoms that we've identified with dementia or perhaps their care partner uh, may have spoken to you about his or her concerns about their partner. I'm wondering how you might see yourself responding as a clinician to that very initial identification of what may be an emerging uh, condition for a person. So there's two points that stand out to me when you bring that up as a scenario. I mean, certainly uh, as a family doctor, I'm trained to look after people from birth until end of life. Uh, we call it cradle to grave care. 
and its comprehensive office-based care that I've developed over these years. The only thing I had to give up was delivering babies because it was just quite difficult to juggle that. And most recently, I was probably challenged with one of the most difficult dementia diagnoses because it ended up that both husband and wife had it. And I had known this couple for the better part of a decade. And one of the issues that a family doctor can fall into is sometimes you know each other so well that, you know, it's almost like you don't have to say very much before one knows what the other needs. And it's a trap that a family doctor has to be careful about because you are so accustomed to seeing and hearing from someone in a certain pattern that if that pattern is maintained and there's a dementia process happening in the background, you're unlikely to pick it up. And even if a family member is pointing out that, you know, maybe there's an issue when that patient presents, they are already going to defensively sort of uh, barricade that information in a way that they help to reassure you based on your relationship with them that all is well, that there's an issue with the family member. Those are tough. Those are very tough. And when I was a younger or pra practitioner, when I was earlier in my career, I've certainly uh, learned from that. And there was one particular lady who was uh, one of those personalities who was larger than life and nobody dared question her including me as her doctor, because she was such an authority. And it was her daughter who was in my practice who said, we are very concerned, but we don't dare bring it up. Um, we're looking to you. And so to actually be able to do the MMSE and then look at how poorly she did on that for me was a wake up call that I have not forgotten. So with this particular family, it was much the same. The wife was the one that looked after everything in terms of medical visits and appointments. And the gentleman was, um, you know, very happy with that setup. And unfortunately, she developed a fairly rapid onset uh, neurodegenerative process that affected both her memory, speech, as well as her mobility. So suddenly his uh, foundation was shaken up. And he reacted with a lot of anger and grief over the loss of a partner who he could no longer rely on. But remarkably, he developed chest pain and she still had enough of her caregiving ability that she convinced him to go to the hospital and saved his life. But afterwards, nothing was the same for either of them. You know, whether the heart attack itself had some kind of anoxic damage, very slowly, when they would come in together for her care, I was starting to look at him to ask questions about how well he was actually doing and he wasn't doing well. So of course, depression in the caregiver is a big issue and he acknowledged that. We did the testing and confirmed that. He did not want any uh, treatment for it. But the more he presented, the more I started to question whether there was a dementia process there as well. And you can imagine how difficult that was. And it was. Um, at the end of it, we were able to establish a diagnosis and his MMSE was also very low and going down very rapidly. And he became quite defensive because he was also driving. So I really had to uh, lay the law down, so to speak. And uh, he truly was a danger to himself and her. 
And now I had nobody within the household to be able to rely on for getting any kind of information about everything from what did you eat to has she had any falls to have you been driving? So my uh, next step always is um, to include the family. In fact, one of the things I try to do proactively and you know, I'm, I'm not successful all of the time because so many competing things. But when my patients reach 60 to 65, I start to talk to them about advanced care planning. And it's from a, a wonderful program that really lays out steps towards really thinking about the fact that our life is finite and how we wish to be treated as time goes on. And it opens up the doorway for me to ask about who has power of attorney, who's going to be the executor of your will, who will be your substitute medical uh, decision maker. So thankfully, in this case, uh, we were able to do that. And thanks to virtual care, literally one family member was somewhere else in Canada. And so we actually had a family conference. And I cannot stress how important that is because you want everybody to hear the same message from the doctor so that you know, the kinds of issues that then rise within families are perhaps, or hopefully managed at the point of care. One of the other barriers that I find I face is the ability to test somebody who is showing evidence of dementia with ter in terms of their safe driving. And so in Nova Scotia, we have two sources. One is the Drive Able program that uh, a couple of physiotherapists thankfully have set up, and it costs about $400. Uh, the wait list is not long because it's privately funded. But the other is the publicly funded, uh, which is from the rehab hospital. But they have a two-year wait list, and now they too are charging for it. So unfortunately, this group of individuals who absolutely need to have testing done on a regular basis so that they don't inadvertently lose their uh, licenses, that service is just either not available or for some not affordable. I generally don't mince words when it comes to driving, and I acknowledge how critically important it is. And in this particular uh, presentation, uh, the gentleman who now himself is presenting with dementia symptoms is the one that likes to feel the independence of being able to even just drive to go for a walk down a pathway that they have close to their home. So losing his ability to drive would make them incredibly dependent on others, which I know is the most difficult transition, uh, just as bad as the diagnosis itself and as you start to see someone's memory failing. And this is where family members, of course, are very important. Um, you know, what they do with the keys, what they do with the, with the actual vehicle, if somebody is resistant. But this is where things get a bit conflict-ridden and very stress-provoking, very stress-provoking. I always feel for the family members and caregivers. So the other area as a family doctor I look at is how do you support the caregivers? And First Link was just a godsend. In terms of the part about driving and the part about actually supporting families, I would love to see more mental health services where there may be groups or there may be one-on-one -on -one where the whole family sits together. I've now started to develop a new linkage with some of the general internal medicine specialists so that we do a shared care uh, physiotherapist who specialize in managing uh, activity in the elderly. 
urban polling and the use of um, activator poles and urban polling sticks and having my physiotherapist starting to work with people in terms of their mobility. Working, as I said, with some of the mental health therapists within our group, there was one instance where uh, within a nursing home facility, there was an area for independent living and one of our members was, um, she was just presenting with behaviors that the nursing staff just did not know what to do with. What I actually was not able to get was this team, but instead there's a, a group called FMPE, which is out of McMaster, and they produce modules to train family doctors about what is emerging and they give us evidence and we sit in groups and we manage to have discussions which balances evidence with uh, actual experience. And they had just done two or three excellent modules on care of the elderly, care of dementia, and there was an entire sheet for behavioral intervention. Well, I literally took that sheet and I sat down with the nursing staff and I gave it to them and said, when the person says this, here's what you can do that will not cause them to get more agitated. And I've used that as a resource and I give it to patients and their caregivers as well. So, you know, I'm trying to bridge a gap, but those are the kinds of things I've turned to. But last but not least is pharmacists. So in Nova Scotia, pharmacists uh, have been given expanded scope. There's a number of things they can do and they can do a medication review for which they are paid. And as you know, um, and I think we don't do a good enough job with this, as people are aging and if there is a diagnosis of dementia, one of the first things that they must have is a medication review. In some of the places where it might be a community-based small home where it's two or three people, and it's usually the staff of those uh, places. So either in the community or it might be a senior's facility. And the, in the example that I gave you, I knew my patient was uh, presenting with behavioral issues that was beyond sort of what that group would hold on to in terms of even letting her be there. But we've had a shortage of beds in long-term care and the staff there recognize that. So I think because they have a relationship with me that is collaborative, they're often willing to keep some of my patients there longer knowing that I'm available at the drop of a hat to support them. So it was the, the woman who supervised the entire uh, health care of the residents in that uh, seniors facility is a nurse by training. So she, uh, she had uh, two LPNs that would actually be doing everything from taking blood pressures to uh, giving medication. So that was the group that we sat down with and I shared them, with them the information. And I think they went on to take that and actually did an in-service because they recognized that was a gap, that they did not have training in behavior-based interventions for somebody with early onset and emerging evidence of dementia. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It is interesting to hear another clinician's perspective and to hear some similar themes such as gaps in patient care, identified by Dr. Jaya Barathon, including accessible allied health professionals, driving assessment, family counseling, and paramedic and police training that were mentioned in our interview, but for reasons of time, not included in this podcast. Our next episode ends our system journey 
when we will take a look back at some of the themes that have emerged in this series. Our participants include Jim Mann, a pioneer in dementia activism in Canada, and Jacoby Elliott, PhD, an associate of the Geriatric Health Systems Research Group at the University of Waterloo, co-sponsors of this series. Thanks to our listeners for connecting to us on Twitter, Facebook, or signing up on our website. Thanks also to the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, our sponsoring partner. Thank you. My name is David Harvey. Take care.